Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, today we are going to be talking about undead genes. Yes, um, undead genes as they've been called in some of the, the, the headlines making the, the rounds. Some have even dared to call them zombie genes. But I like to think even even those headline writers feel a little bit dirty call, actually calling them zombie genes. I think zombies is a metaphor that is... Just invoked too often now. Yeah. I used to love zombies, uh, 10 years ago or so, or maybe even a little before that is when it was like peak zombie for me in 2004. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead that year and, and, and that was enough. And then suddenly we, we're in this zombie world where everything is zombies all the time. Yeah. It's been, I'm tired of it. It's been, it's been rolled out just far too often in science headlines. So yeah, I think we should do more. Just undead genes or Un- undead could be a vampire. Yeah. It could be a lich. Yeah. Lich genes would be good. I would like that. Or even, uh, yeah, even something like, um, necro genes. I could go for that as well. But the, the cool thing is, is what we're talking about here is not completely out of keeping with these concepts. You know, it's that there is, there is a strong enough, uh, thread connecting even the more outlandish headlines to the really cool science that's going on here. Yeah. And so specifically, this is going to be rep, uh, referencing a paper that was pre-published this mm-hmm. summer in June. I think we're actually still waiting on it to come out in, in uh, journal form, but it was pre-published on a pre-publication server, bioarchive, and, and it's been covered in that form. So just be aware that, uh, that you know, uh, we don't have all the opinions in yet. Right, right. But back back to undead genes. So we, of course, probably don't have to say this, but just to be clear, this is a metaphor. We're not talking about any kind of magical or supernatural resuscitation. Instead, we're trying to communicate what's very unusual about the activity of genetic structures that have been discovered to continue after what's known as organismal death, the yeah. death of the overall body. And uh, and it's not unusual, of course, to use metaphors to think about what the body does. But it is helpful to find the right ones. Yeah, we depend on a number of metaphors to understand the human body. Machine is a big one. Right. Uh, you know, the biomechanical man. Um, I've, I'm always partial to horse and rider versus centaur. Wait, who's the rider? Well, horse and rider, horse and rider, the, the rider is the brain. Okay. And the horse is the body. And this is a, a faulty way of looking at the, at the mind body connection. Right. Centaur makes more sense where the two are, are joined. Okay. Um, and, and in addition to that, you also um, see vessel every now and then. I think we've talked about like spaceship, the spaceship human body before. Yeah. Um, but if you think of it as a civilization, as I did in looking at this paper, you know, what is death but the apocalypse? Yeah. Ex- civilizational extinction. Exactly. Because you have in the human body, you essentially have a vast kingdom of somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 trillion cells, 30,000 genes, 11 distinct systems. And uh, on top of all of this, just the, the, the manifestation of cognition, environmental sensitivity, navigation and self-awareness. All of the, these systems, this, this wondrous manifestation of consciousness, all of it working together and ruled over by by genetics and epigenetics. So the genes and then the way the genes are expressed, uh, at least until what happens? 
everything falls apart, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. I'm kind of seeing this. So maybe in this metaphor, you can think about genes as what the constitution that governs the society. Yeah. Or the council of elders and their robes <laughs> and the uh, servants that, that rule over the fabulous city. Yeah. I, I guess you could probably say that no real civilization is as thoroughly prescribed by any kind of written document that says how everything's going to work mm-hmm. as the body is by the genes. Right. Yeah, and then of course that's not to say that everything works perfectly. Certainly, this the, the kingdom of the human body has its issues and has its problems, but sometimes you might get a cancerous rebellion. Yeah, yeah, cancerous rebellion or just things that don't particularly work right. But we kind of we evolved into it. Mm-hmm. It's the, the current system of government is based on old systems of government, and uh, and therefore the legacy is still there. Yeah, and in this sense, I guess you could look at death as if death in the body is energy bankruptcy. Suddenly cells can't get the energy they need in order to do what they need to do. That's sort of like in a civilizational sense, if there's a total collapse of resource distribution, suddenly you can't get food and energy, you know, power, water to the people who need them. Exactly. And when that when that happens, say, in a a kingdom, in a in in an empire, we it's not like everything just completely falls apart. I mean, th- th- things may fall apart. The center may not hold, but everybody doesn't just vanish into nothing. Right. Um, and, and we see a You'd similar have bands thing. of rovers. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We see a similar thing happen with the body, just as certain factions in a post-apocalyptic scenario would would try and hold on to power or carry out their duties, you know, bravely delivering the mail no matter uh, what has happened. While other populations such as microbiota and in, uh, in, in our body uh, riot and rampage. So just as warlords and bandit kings rise up in the wake of a kingdom's fall, so, too, do certain genes come to life after death. Some manifesting in ways that they haven't since the womb. Yeah. And that's uh, the crazy thing here. We have to ask, you know, what is happening here? We, we tend to view death as this great unraveling with system after system just going dark. So why would certain genes activate on the other side of death? Why would there be an uptick in activity from certain genes after the organism has technically died. Well, that's a good question. Eventually, we're going to look at this paper specifically that, mm-hmm. that's been pre-published this summer and, and discuss its findings. But first, I think we need to set a little bit of context about what exactly is happening in the body with uh, with genes and, and how they're expressed. So a question you might have wondered before, maybe you already know the answer to this. Maybe it's all a little bit kind of vague. How do you get from genes to bodies? We all know this metaphor that genes are the blueprints, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that genes have some sort of information encoded in them that will allow you to build a body that does what your body does. But really, a gene is, is a molecule. A gene is a, a tiny molecular structure in DNA, and it's a chain of nucleotides, which are organic molecules made of a, you know, nitrogenous molecule base, and usually you got a phosphate group and a carbon sugar. But bodies are these big macrostructures, relatively gigantic machines, and they're made primarily of cells full of proteins and protein structures that determine what the cells can do. And ultimately, this collection of cells works as a sort of vehicle for gene replication, basically by being a gigantic energy trap. Now, how do you get from one to the other? This tiny molecule has to build your whole body. 
Well, in order to get from this tiny chain molecule to create an effect in the outside, uh, in, in the, the outer world, the body at large, the gene has to be expressed. This is the term, gene expression. And it's the name for the process that gets you from DNA to cell function. And then, of course, cell function at large determines what your body is and what it does. But at the ground level, this process is just biochemistry. Uh, you might remember these words uh, from some time learning them in school, transcription and translation. Do they ring a bell? G- gene, gene expression is what these words refer to. So you have a chain of nucleotides in your DNA, and it's a gene for, I was trying to think of what I could say a gene for, maybe uh, fingernails growing really fast. Okay. Could that be a thing that's gene regulated? Perhaps. Sure. Uh, so first, in order for that gene to be expressed, there's what's known as transcription. And this is going to be key to the paper that we're looking at in a bit. Uh, transcription is where an enzyme called RNA polymerase latches onto a section of the DNA molecule. And it starts pulling together all these other molecules to create a copy of that DNA section out of this substance RNA, which is similar to DNA. Now, sometimes that RNA copy alone does something useful in the cell. You've just made this RNA copy and it goes off and does its job. Other times, RNA is what's known as messenger RNA, and it essentially acts to take that that gene and carry it to a structure inside the cell like a ribosome. And there at the ribosome, uh, which a ribosome is a tiny molecular machine, it's a nano machine that does work inside the cell. At the ribosome, we get to the process of translation, and that's where the ribosome essentially, metaphorically, it reads the RNA photocopy of the gene and then translates into proteins that assume a function within the cell. These proteins determine what the cell can do. So that's how you get from genes to a cell doing something to a body. Um, so, of course, we speak metaphorically in terms like copies and reads, but keep in mind, these are all chemical reactions, just like, you know, Robert, did you ever make a science fair volcano? Oh, you bet I have. Uh, I will make a few more before I'm done. Oh, yeah? Yeah. They are fun, huh? Mm-hmm. I've never made one just for fun at home. Yeah. I guess maybe when I have well, kids. Well, there's a, you know, there's a lot of setup with the, with the volcano itself. Uh huh. But it, yeah, what's the classic recipe for the science fair you volcano? You need baking soda, you need, uh, vinegar, you need a little, uh, food coloring. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And then you got your volcano. Oh, oh you also of, need a volcano. Right. Yeah. I never thought of food coloring. That would make it more lava-ish if you make it orange. Yeah, yeah, or you something. gotta make it orange or red. Otherwise, um, Otherwise, you're just doing baking soda and vinegar. Right. Well, so that's a very simple chemical reaction. But th- this is a much more complex chemical reaction. And th- these chemical reactions are taking place between highly specialized molecules shaped by biochemical evolution. But back to those macro characteristics, the you know, the body as a whole, the, the big characteristics you see, all those observable characteristics of an organism uh, that emerge as a product of genes expressing themselves in an environment, all that together is known as the phenotype. You've got your genotype, that's your genes, and they make your phenotype. So your hair is a part of your phenotype. Mm-hmm. Your toes are a part of your phenotype. And your ability to run and your fear of clowns and your you know delightful craving for deviled eggs, all of that is part of your phenotype. Mm-hmm. So one would typically assume that, well, the Death is sort of the end of the phenotype being able to do its job, right? The death of the organism means, well, I I can't get energy to my cells anymore. Everything's falling apart. So the phenotype just ends. It's kind of like one, it's kind of like the, uh, the the genotype 
the, are the, the hands creating the shadow puppet, right? Yeah. And then the phenotype is the shadow on the wall that looks like a barking dog. Right. Uh, if the flashlight goes out, you can't make the shadow on the wall anymore. Mm-hmm. But, but the, the, hand the, the hands still are still there. there. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the hands are still there. And so the phenotype is not necessarily based on the brain being conscious or the heart circulating blood or the lungs pulling in oxygen and purging CO2. Even though we think of these things as the primary signs of life from a purely chemical standpoint, if you're just some, you know, cosmic chemistry professor looking at what we do and you're not very concerned about the experience of being alive, these are not the primary systems. These are support systems and they're all in service of gene replication. So genes make these systems to do the things they do because they help trap, conserve, and judiciously spend energy that can be used to make gene replication happen more often and more successfully. So even though your brain goes inactive and your heart stops beating and your your lungs stop pumping, you know, the genes in your cell are still, in some sense, independent machines that can continue to do things as long as they have the energy to do them. And they would go on without you if they could. They don't care about you. Even though you, the organism, are gone, the genes as independent machines are are still trying to do their thing. So does your core biological essence live beyond the death of your mind and body at large? Is there gene life after body death? The answer appears to be yes. And the details can get a little bit creepy. Yeah, let's get into uh, the undead genes a bit uh, here. So we knew from previous studies, like this isn't just completely out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so we knew from previous studies looking at blood and liver tissue that, that a few human genes remain active in uh, the cadaver age. The cadaver age. That's yeah. like after the Bronze Age. You're yeah. still continuing your civilization metaphor. Yeah, after the Life Age, into the cadaver age, it continues. But uh, recent work from microbiologist Peter Noble of the University of Washington, Seattle, and his team uh, have revealed a number of genes that that seem to activate after death. So, again, the kingdom's falling apart, the walls are crumbling, barbarians flood the street. There's no going back to order life, bread, and circuses. Yeah. But there are certain certain groups in the city that are still going to do their job. They're still going to deliver the mail. They're still going to enforce the law. You have maniac cops roaming the streets. Yes, the the civilization has collapsed, but but some of the machines within it still continue to do their thing. Yeah. And so, but since there's no going back, since the organism is, organism is dead, since the human body is dead at this point, uh, it's not an area, area that we really knew that much about. Yeah. As the authors themselves point out, quote, it is not well known whether gene expression diminishes gradually or abruptly stops in death, nor whether specific genes are newly expressed or upregulated. Upregulated means, of course, uh, an increase in their activity. Yeah. So they decided to check it out. Yeah. So the paper that they have in pre-publication now is known as thanatotranscriptome, my new favorite word, <laughs> thanatotranscriptome, genes actively expressed after organismal death. And that's pre-published in BioArchive. Uh, last I read, it's still under peer review at a journal somewhere, I think. Um, though if it's already come out and somebody knows about it, please contact us and let us know. But anyway, uh, this refers to this collection of genes that continue to be expressed after organismal death as as the thanatotranscriptome from the Greek thanatos for death and uh, transcriptome for the genes that undergo transcription. But 
I guess the question is, how could you actually examine this? Like, what would right. you do to find out if there are genes that are certainly uh, suddenly starting to be expressed or continuing to be expressed after death happens at the total body level? Yeah, because experiments on humans that involve, uh, you know, getting right in there close at the death point. <laughs> generally, those are those are the kind of experiments that are either very hard to carry out or they're a little unscrupulous in nature, right? So we're not talking about humans in Correct, this experiment. Correct, right. Uh, though it does bring me back to those old experiments of, about the weight of the soul and right. all the painful efforts you had to go to to get a willing, dying individual to set on your set, to, to lay down on a bed on a set of scales for you. But no, they, they did not bother with humans in this. They examined post-mortem gene expression in two model organisms, the zebrafish and the common house mouse, uh, with a focus on examining genes uh, with expression uh, increases after death. Again, uh, we're not talking about um, apoptosis or necrosis, but genes that suddenly light up with doomed life. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, like a band of waste-wandering survivors. Uh, so, so they expected the genes to shut down. But they didn't, uh, it, but they did not in all cases. Although most of these upregulating genes upped their activity in the first 24 hours after the animals expired and then tapered off. And in the fish, some genes remained active four days after death. Yeah. So that, that's crazy. Yeah. Think about it. four days after the organism has died, there are still some genes in some cells Carrying in the body <laughs> that are still doing things. They're they're undergoing transcription. They're having this chemical reaction mm-hmm. that's the beginning of the process to create proteins. Yeah, the fingers are still working furiously to make that dog a shadow puppet on the wall. Now, they had to kill a bunch of fish and mice for this. Uh, that's how you, you get the specific time of, of death for right. the uh, lab animals here. They, I think they killed the fish with ice water. Yeah, they, well, they have a pretty, they have pretty exhaustive details about the methodology in the paper. Uh-huh. Um, but suffice to say, they gave them all, uh, an irrefutable death. So as to study what came next. Yeah. The, the mice I know they killed by cervical dislocation, which yes. is the, the, the humane way you're supposed to execute a mouse in the lab you dislocate the skull from the spine mm-hmm. just like in an action movie with like jean claude van damme going with his hands oh yeah or like mm-hmm. uh, steven seagal does that right oh yeah, yeah he yeah. grabs somebody's head and just breaks it off just this casual little movement mm-hmm. it always does make me a little bit sad to read about mice like that but i think we are actually learning things from this kind of research that could potentially lead to medical research to very useful applications in the real world oh yeah so after they euthanize these animals as, uh, as they said, uh, they took samples and they leaned in for a closer look, observing the non-random upregulation of certain genes. And that's important here because it's not just like, oh, the, everything's out of order and things are clicking on and off randomly. So yeah, much. yeah, that that is worth noting. So mm-hmm. it wasn't just like uh, all the genes started just kind of lighting up. Is they they notice specific genes are being upregulated at this time. Yeah, so it's not like oh, the chicken's head is cut off and it's just running. It's no, it's more like the chicken's head is cut off, but it's running specifically, uh, to a bar across town to get a drink or something. Um, <laughs> and so, so they sorted the genes into several different categories. So I'm just gonna, I'm, and I'm, and we're not gonna go through all of the genes in all of the categories, but just the categorization they rolled out, I think, is very, uh, illuminating. So stress, immunity, inflammation, apoptosis, solute ion protein transport, embryonic development, mm. epigenetic regulation, and cancer. 
Okay, so one part of their results that is not so surprising is that uh, a lot of the gene expression that you see continuing uh, after death is related to emergencies happening within the body. Yeah, yeah, shock, emergency. They're concerned with stimulating inflammation and the immune system. I mean, these are the police and firefighters that are swamping the post-apocalyptic city, right? Yeah. Uh, the genes perform tasks such as uh, spurring inflammation, f- firing up the immune system, and counteracting stress stress in the organism, just doing their job in the face of cataclysm, even though there's actually no hope. Right. Uh, specifically, just to give you a taste of some of the specifics. But, you know, that kind of makes sense, even though there's no hope. The cell doesn't really know there's yeah, no it, hope. It's, it, not his, it's, it's not his job. Yeah. He's just doing his job. He's, that All that other stuff's above his pay grade. Uh, specifically, the stress response genes uh, were assigned to three groups, uh, heat shock protein, Hypoxia-related and other responses such as uh, oxidative stress. Yeah. Hypoxia, of course, would be oxygen deprivation. Yeah. Your cells know how to respond when they're not getting the oxygen they need. Exactly. And uh, also it's worth noting that in both organisms, um, organismal death activated heat shock, hypoxia, and other stress genes, which varied in the timing and duration of upregulation within and between organisms. So, but the, so they set off these stress responses. Yeah. Death did. Yeah. And all that, that makes sense, right? Total, yeah. Totally on board. That makes total sense that these genes would be firing up in this time of chaos and unrest. But the really surprising thing was the embryonic gene activity. Developmental genes that normally help sculpt the embryo, uh, but they aren't needed after birth. And the, the possible reason here is because, and this is according to the authors, is that cellular conditions in newly dead corpses resemble those in embryos. And there's something about that man that manages to be both comforting and grotesque at the same time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you, you might be wondering, like, wait a minute, why, how could this happen that you'd have developmental genes that are, you know, not normally expressed in life? So these genes that help you develop as an embryo, they remain a part of your genome. Mm-hmm. They're still there, but they're known, they're, they're quote, silenced, which means they're regulated in such a way that they no longer undergo gene expression. Uh, they're still there. They're just turned off. But in organismal death, all those off switches just sort of get opened right back up. They switch back on and these silenced genes are set free to be loud and proud. Yeah, it's just it's cra- crazy to think about. But along with that, so we've got uh, development genes, embryonic genes. You know, these are causing uh, the development of body tissues, cell division. One thing you might not be surprised to see going along with that is genes that are related to cancer. Yes, yeah, several cancer causing genes also activated and this result, uh, according to the authors, could possibly explain why uh, some individuals who receive transplants from the recently deceased have higher have a higher risk of cancer. Now, I didn't actually know this fact. I, I was in, but, I was not really aware of that either. But uh, yeah, according to the authors, apparently people who receive uh, like an organ transplant mm-hmm. from a recently deceased person, you die in an accident. They take your organs, give them to someone who needs them. You're more likely to experience cancer. Yeah, uh, like a tumor in those organs. So uh, that that would seem to make sense if the the death response in the overall body triggers some kind of genetic activity within these organs that sets off the cancer program. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like communication transfer between the two worlds, between the living world and the the, the post-death world, the post-apocalyptic world. It's kind of like if your local neighborhood was going to hire a neighborhood watch Uh and they hired the Brotherhood of Steel from the Fallout games, you know? (laughs) They're they're from a totally different uh, time with a totally different set of values. 
Okay, I wanted to read one quote from the paper that I thought was uh, very illustrative of what we would have expected from this kind of study and what we found instead. So the authors write, quote, We initially thought that sudden death of a vertebrate would be analogous to a car driving down the highway and running out of gas. For a short time, the engine pistons will move up and down and spark plugs will spark, but eventually the car will grind to a halt and, quote, die. Yet, in our study, we find hundreds of genes are upregulated many hours post-mortem with some, e.g., and then they give the names of some genes Mm -hmm. that are especially interesting here, upregulated days after organismal death. This finding is surprising because in our car analogy, one would not expect window wipers to suddenly turn on and the horn to honk several days after running out of gas. Yeah. So that, that communicates the, you know, the, the energy bankruptcy problem. You, you don't have energy to do anything with anymore, uh, at the, at the total system level. So you would expect just nothing to happen anymore. But apparently if there's, uh, still energy within some cells in the body, you know, still some local energy that can be used to do something, the body is going to do something with it. And, uh, this also, they pointed out that since we saw this, uh, this postmortem upregulation, this postmortem gene expression happening in both mice and zebrafish, that's interesting. It happened in both of these very different organisms. It's reasonable to assume that other multicellular eukaryotes, so, you know, uh, organisms with a cell nucleus that have multiple cells like us, will show the same kind of phenomenon. It's not just an artifact of one branch of the tree of life. And that's kind of weird. Yeah. Like, so what if th- that includes humans? Uh, so this continued gene expression after death leads to some really bizarre questions. I want to quote one that they bring up in the paper. What would happen if we arrested the process of dying by providing nutrients and oxygen to these tissues? They're talking about tissues that show continued gene expression mm-hmm. after death. Quote, it might be possible for cells to revert back to life or take some interesting path to differentiating into something new or lose differentiation altogether, such as in cancer. I'm imagining, uh, oh, my God, the, the post-death expression of the genome reawakened into a living organism. This would make a great sci-fi movie. The the Thanatotranscriptome Man. Ha. I like it. Uh, the the like the the idea I'm kind of envisioning here, uh, based on this, is essentially you could take a newly deceased individual, and if not keep their body alive, at least keep certain tissues alive, yeah. keep certain or certain aspects of their body remain living, even though the 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 brain is dead, even though the 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 body is essentially dead as well. I mean, right now, I think the the organ preservation regime is well. It's preservation. You know, mm-hmm. they want to get the organ into very cold uh, to cold conditions so that it's uh, sort of freezes up and doesn't undergo too much cell death. Right. But yeah, what would it mean to to take tissues that are still showing gene expression and and give them something to work with? Yeah. Put some energy back into the bank. I live. I die. I live again. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, we, we can actually get some interesting ideas out of this that might be useful in, in medicine or in forensics even. Yeah. I mean, first of all, in just a broad sense, it allows us to better understand life itself. 
Because uh, despite humanity's tendency to define death as this outside force, as a thing that happens to our body, even as a personified force, um, despite all of this, death is something our bodies do. Okay, yeah. And to understand how life behaves at or even past the death point is to better understand how life works. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say ultimately understanding death is is one of the most important things in understanding what the boundaries of life are. I mean, if you think about it, our earliest understanding of what is necessary to sustain life must have come from observations about what specific deprivations lead to death. Yeah, like, oops, that I held that guy underwater yeah. for a little bit too long, apparently, and he's no longer alive. I guess we can't live underwater. Yeah, exactly. So deprivation of air leads to death within minutes. Deprivation of water within mm-hmm. days. Deprivation if, of food or sleep can mean death within weeks. If I take this this bone from a taper and beat this other humanoid with it, yeah. they cease to function. I guess we can't we can't well, roll with that either. That's actually a question you wouldn't normally think to ask, but why does that happen? Mm-hmm. Can you imagine at the uh, troglodyte level, you know, a very, very early human trying to figure out what it is about massive blood loss and beating that causes a person to stop moving? Yeah. It's it's one of this is the type of question I encounter a lot now with a four year old, not specifically about violent uh, apes beating each other to death. I haven't let him watch uh, 2001 yet, uh, but uh, but I get a lot of questions where I'm forced to reevaluate just basic realities of life, uh, such as you know my son will ask why do we lock the door at night? Well, we don't want people coming in the house while we're asleep. Why, why not? not? Why not? <laughs> and that's a, a terrifying question to be asked because you can't really answer it for a four year old. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, but questions like that about just like, every aspect of the natural world, um, as as Louis C.K. points out in his his, his stand up, you you end up in a very um, existentially problematic place eventually where you're making arguments like, uh, well, some things are and some things are not. Uh-huh. <laughs> And then you just have to cut off the, the questioning and uh, change the subject. Yeah, ontological crisis brought on by the questioning of children. <laughs> now, one of the other interesting areas here is, of course, uh, in the area of forensics. Oh, yeah. Which I, I, I didn't even think of when I first started reading this. Yeah, so one thing you'll notice if you look at this paper is that there are uh, express, there's gene expression charted onto time. Mm-hmm. So you can chart the transcription of certain genes after death by looking at uh, the amount of MRNA or something like that after certain periods of time after the organism dies. Now, one thing you could do with this is take those time charts and, you know, do them enough that you have a pretty rigorous idea of exactly what the numbers should be at what points after death, how long it takes and you can figure out based on the amount of mRNA or something like that in the the tissue sample how long it has been since the organismal death occurred since this organism died yeah you have you have kind of a timeline of genetic upregulation that you can look to and you say all right when did the when did John Doe here uh, expire well let's see what Let's see what his genes are doing. Yeah. And and uh, then we'll compare it to the chart and then we'll have uh, a very definite idea, potentially, about when he died. And, of course, that's something that now we don't always have a great way of doing that. Uh, When uh, one of the articles we read, I know, pointed out that, uh, you know, forensic investigators are often trying to, like, look at last made phone calls or texts or something like that in order to establish time of death. It Mm -hmm. would be great to have a much more solid or I think they might look at body temperature. 
Body in some cases, yeah. but, but but it's not always solid. You you would be great to have a really really reliable way to know exactly when somebody died. Yeah. So that's another big possibility here for this paper. In fact, there's a, an entire separate paper that that, that looks ex- extensively at the forensic applications. Yeah, and so I imagine at some point there is going to be a, a whole blooming science of the thanatotranscriptome. I yeah. Mean, I, I have to imagine this is going to inspire a lot more research. And hopefully a few horror movies as well. Yes. Yeah. All right, so there you have it. Um, this is definitely a topic where we, we wanted to make sure we didn't go too in-depth that the paper itself is is ultimately very readable uh, and, and fascinating, but it and it's and it's open on and the it's internet, open, yeah. so you can look it up by the yeah, title. Yeah, readily again. available. But uh, but it does go into 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 depth. It does list out a lot of genes and uh, and and specify exactly what they're doing uh, more so than it made sense to include here. But we wanted to give you a nice overview of these findings and uh, and give you an appreciation for where it might be heading. In the meantime, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. It's our website. It recently received a facelift. It's looking pretty great. Uh, you can find all of our podcast episodes there, along with videos, blog posts, links out to our various social media accounts, including, oh, Tumblr, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. If you are active on any of those accounts, look us up, follow us, and stay, uh, in, you know, stay uh, abreast of what we're doing. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, as always, you can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 